we were all, I would say, girls playing boys who were in love with other boys. Lotion Bruyar, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Fantasy Potential? Hello, listener, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where, every episode, we take a close look at someone's life as told through music. I'm your host, Michael Collins, Hufflepuff Head Boy. Today we're chatting with Lotion Bruyard. Lotion was born in China, raised as a Quebecoise just outside Montreal, partly anglicized in Toronto, and she cultivates a love-hate relationship with France. She went from being the goth high school class president to a PhD student in medieval studies. She's a social nerd, a feminist geek, a close reader with big ideas, and a consciously kind Slytherin who tries her best to use her power for good. Lotion and I had a fascinating chat about Quebec culture, Catholicism, medievalism, gender and sexuality, and the strange puzzles of racialized identities. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Lotion. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thank you for inviting me. I hope I can live up to the thoughtful conversations you've had so far on the show. I'm very sure that you will. <laughs> uh, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. You're finishing off your PhD in, in Toronto, yes? Yes. So I'm a PhD candidate at the Centre for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. I come from Montreal. Uh, so my first language is the French. As Canadian heroes usually are able to identify right off the bat where I come from, but that's not the case for uh, people who come from elsewhere. Canadians, I feel, probably can tell the difference between France French and Quebecois French accents pretty easily, but do you ever get mistaken for being from France? Well, actually, Michael, uh, if you want, uh, I can also do a French accent uh, <laughs> as if I were from France. Uh, as you know, I code switch uh, very much in my life, and when I go over to France, I switch to a French accent. And then, uh, in the same way that I think most English speakers would be able to do a British accent. I can do a fake French accent, <laughs> both in, Fre in French and in English. I didn't mean to cut you off, by the way. You can continue with what you were saying. Oh, well, I just wanted to say I'm a big fan of the show. You know, like I was drawn to the concept of this is your mixtape from the beginning because I'm also someone who compiles playlists, my favorite songs every year. And I, I attach memories to certain songs or artists. So when when I listen to the show, to me, it, it validates this mnemonic effect musical auditory practice that I have myself. So I've really enjoyed listening to your, your podcast. Wow, that's very sweet. On that, why don't we get into your songs? So what song do we have up first? The first song I chose is Peter Gabriel's A Different Drum. It uh, features Yusu Endor, uh, and it's from the soundtrack for The Last Temptation of Christ. I am familiar with Peter Gabriel. I think most people who know anything about popular music in the 20th century would be. But I didn't know this track. This is from the soundtrack for the film, yes? Yes, it is, yeah. Okay, so why don't you tell me how you came to know the song? Well, uh, this album, I think, uh, really introduced or made the world music more popular to uh, Western audiences. And I came to know this song because my father is someone who doesn't play any instruments, but he really loves music. And I grew up in a household where there was always music playing. And actually, it's very funny for me because I find it very uncomfortable whenever I go somewhere, let's say to for like a dinner and there's no music playing. It seems to me like something is missing. Mm -hmm. So 
I was very lucky to grow up in the uh, in a household where uh, also the the music with uh, my father's music range is very uh, eclectic. I I grew up listening to classic jazz like Miles Davis, Chet Baker, or Billie Holiday, and uh, then classical music. Uh, also a lot of chansons françaises. English-speaking audiences might know uh, Charles Aznavour or Georges Brassens or Jacques Brel, mm-hmm. and then all of the world music possible. So we had uh, Cuban music, Chinese, Indian, Irish, Croatian, Portuguese, Moroccan music playing. I thought that this track from the Last Temptation of Christ really represented the the kind of music that would play at home and that broadened my horizons as a kid. I have this idea based on my own upbringing that. In the later part of the 80s and the early 90s, this was definitely a thing that was going on in sort of middle-class, progressive, sort of left-leaning households. There was very much this uh, drive to sort of include world music, which was often sort of through the lens of established white North American or European sort of artists. So I think about Paul Simon's Graceland, uh, things like that. Is this an interest that you carry forward? Like, are you still global in your musical tastes? I would say so. Uh, I think it's interesting what you were, uh, like the, the moment uh, in the 80s, 90s, where like, uh, as you said, it has to do with class, it has to do with politics. I think I definitely was wondering when I put together my soundtrack, how much representation I should give to different artists and I found it I thought to myself I would really like to include a world music track because well maybe because it signals a certain thing but also because it is a, a part of my a musical upbringing also because it's it's something that uh, I find important but it's interesting that as you said it's uh, Peter Gabriel an established white artist who uh, features um, uh, people of color like uh, who are uh, by uh, uh, by their own merits extremely uh, well known so Yusu Endor is the is, has become a household name in the same way. Uh, one of the artists playing the drums on the this track is a, a star in Senegal. It's a Dudu and the uh, Rose or Rosé. I'm not sure how you say his name. So these people in their own countries are very well known, but uh, I, I'm not sure it's really the case here in the in North America or in Europe. And yes, that's it. So I was thinking to myself, if you look at the artists in my uh, in my playlist, uh, they're they're all white people basically. But yeah, my musical taste has remained pretty uh, global, I would say. So I like to sometimes I just go on the on the on the binge and I start downloading anything. So I, I for instance, these days I've been watching a Chinese drama. So I like to listen to Eru mus- uh, music with the Chinese violin, Eru. Or sometimes I like I really had a big uh, Brazilian uh, phase where I was listening to some a uh, guy called uh, Jorge Benjor. So I would say that that stayed with me, uh, and it's. I think it's a very nice uh, gift from my father in that. In that, uh... and I'm also thinking about how these sort of collaborations between the established white artists who sort of brought in world music elements in the '80s and '90s. It's very easy to be critical of them, but that is also the sort of thing that can open up the door to more uh, broader experiences, as you've been saying. All I can think about now is how I became aware of Bulgarian music, Bulgarian folk Mm. music through Kate Bush, who had a trio of Bulgarian singers featured on an album that came out the same year as this Peter Gabriel track. And I mean, I've, I've gone deeper than that. I haven't sort of left it at the surface there. Bulgarian folk music is fascinating and completely bonkers time signatures, but I'm not sure I would ever have been aware of it at all if it wasn't for the fact that 
Kate Bush has these singers on on a couple of songs on her 1989 album. So it's easy to be critical, but there are positive effects, I think. Uh, and I think that sometimes, too, there are different traditions. For instance, I think about a traditional Japanese music. For us, I think it's it's the kind of music that's sometimes very hard to approach. It's not, it's not melodious necessarily. Or So I think that sometimes you need this gateway into, into something else. Uh, it's difficult to make a big leap sometimes you need to take smaller steps <laughs> um, yeah exactly yeah so this is from the last temptation of christ so this raises the uh, the issue of religion and your relationship to it quebec was until the quiet revolution a, a very deeply catholic society correct mm-hmm. um so why don't you speak a little bit about that i guess I think the, the situation in Quebec is, is very interesting. And uh, only people who grew up in Catholic environments where uh, Catholicism is a majority, I would say, uh, would understand it better. Because in Quebec, so as you said, since, since the 1960s, there's a very strong anti-clerical current. Quebec is the least practicing province of Canada. And I, I find it interesting that people usually associate Catholicism with a more uh, fervent uh, conservative uh, streak, while in Quebec in general, Quebec is more left-wing, more progressive on a number of issues, and also uh, not practicing. Although I, I would argue that there remains uh, uh, many remnants of Catholicism in the Quebec culture. So, for instance, when I was uh, uh, when I grew up, I had to go through all the sacraments because religious classes were still the norm in the public school system. It's not the case anymore, but uh, for someone like me, it was it was normal to have religion classes uh, once a week. Uh, we would look at some passages from the New Testament and draw. Uh, so, for instance, Zacharias, the the publican, in, uh, hiding in the tree from Jesus, and then you had to draw that story in a big blue book. Uh, that had fishes on it. This was the extent of the kind of religious education we would get. It didn't go very much into depth. And afterwards, we were shepherded through all the sacraments. So at the age of eight, I had to go through my first communion, which uh, just required three extra classes, and then my uh, my confirmation. But I, I find it interesting to see the shift because these days, religious classes like this have disappeared. So if children want to go through uh, the Catholic uh, rites, they need to do it uh, outside of school at church. And it's become a much more difficult and drawn-out process. Now, they, I think it takes two years until you can get confirmation and communion. Or as for us, it was just a, a systematic kind of process. And there were very few people who actually opted out. I Remember sixth grade, so when I was 11 and 12, uh, let's see, it, it was a class of uh, 28, 30 kids. Only three kids took the so-called ethics or morale class, and everybody else went through the, the sacraments. But then no one went to church. I only knew of one girl who went to church on Sundays, and we learned about it like through hearsay, and we all thought it was bizarre. So it's this strange uh, hybrid of having to go through the motions, but not doing anything the rest of the year or like in your, in your life in general. So I wonder sometimes if your experience as a, as a Catholic in you, Newfoundland was like that, because I know that for some Catholics who grew up as a minority or not necessarily that's it, like the, or like a, a substantial group with other religions or other Christian denominations, 
then people tend to be a little bit more gung-ho. But when you're a majority in a place where no one cares about their religion anymore, it's a very different relationship, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And yeah, as you've been describing your childhood there, I'm absolutely nodding along in recognition. It was it was very much the same. Uh, there, there was not any secular school system in Newfoundland until 1998. So the only school in my town was a Catholic school. And the nearest schools were about an hour's drive north or an hour's drive south, and they are both Catholic as well. So, like, you didn't have an option. You went to the Catholic school and you had your religion class, which was right there alongside math and biology and whatever else. And, yeah, like, it was just taken as a matter of course. And, of course, you'll go through the sacraments because it's, it's just sort of like going to gym class. You might not like it or you might like it, but it's just a matter. It's just normal. You just do it. And it's very interesting what you say about how now where it's become less normal and sort of something extra that you have to seek out in Quebec, and that means it's a much longer process that can take a few years to receive the sacraments. In a way, I feel like that's probably a good thing <laughs> because it makes, first of all, it makes them more special, which they should be if you're taking them seriously as a spiritual experience. But I also remember my father actually held me back from receiving these sacraments, and I was very much an oddball. I was the only one in my class in grade 8 who didn't get confirmed. Oh, wow. And that was because my father thought that um, I was not old enough to make such a serious decision and that I should come to it myself when I was more mature rather than just being pushed along the current. And I really appreciate my father for, for that looking backwards. So I'm just wondering, just building off of that, uh, what the family environment was. Were you a religious family? Were you, your parents? I, I take it you didn't go to mass just from what you said, but... I would say, I think my parents, like any Quebecers, I would say, I, I'm not even sure what the figures would be, but I, 90% of Quebecers must have been practicing. Uh, so they they grew up uh, in the 1960s and they went to church every Sunday for the whole of their childhood. And my mother also uh, kept on going to church in her, into her 20s. But after we came, I, I, I barely ever went to church. Um, so that's it for Midnight Mass. Not even for Easter, which in retrospect is very strange. Uh, so no, I we didn't grow up in a very religious household. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, I became very religious when I was around eight years old. Yeah. When I did my first communion, I got this comic uh, about so this graphic novel about the life of Saint Francis and a little illustrated Bible, which I loved. I would read that. I would put it next to my bed with other books, and then I would read it over and over. And I was really enthralled with all the uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, Old Testament stories. I thought they were so interesting. And I think that because of that, I had an image of God, not as the loving God, but as the God that can really smite your whole family if you're not doing things (laughs) right. And also, I developed, uh, I think I developed a Catholic guilt of my own. (laughs) I would pray at night in bed. I would hide my hands under my pillow and pray for the health of my family. And then I remember distinctly that a couple of times I just fell asleep. forgot to do it and then i would wake up in the morning and think oh my god my mother's gonna have cancer because i forgot (laughs) that is that is the most catholic thing i've heard in a long time (laughs) my mother's going to get cancer because i forgot to pray (laughs) that's where i think to myself it's such a funny like what do you talk about catholic guilt no, no one at church. I can't. I can't tell you that the priest ever or like the the religion classes were trying to instill guilt and fear into you. But it just came on my own that there's this supernatural being that is looking down upon me, and everything I do, he weighs it and thinks, well, that was great or that was sinful. So I 
I, it's, it's very interesting that at eight years old, I, I had this sense that I was being evaluated by an invisible being that was omniscient, omnipotent, uh, eternal, and that because of that, I, I, he, he held the fate of my family in his hands, you know? Yes. Um, were you a good student? I was, yeah, I was a very good student. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe that has to do with it. You know, the kind of neurosis, mm-hmm. uh, the perfectionist streak that you have when you're a very, uh, you're at top of the class. Yeah, because that, that panic that you're describing is, uh, to me, it sounds like the same panic where an A student just somehow forgot to do their homework and then they're realizing that there's an assignment due that they somehow missed. And it's like, oh, God, everything's going to fall apart. <laughs> the one time you slip, you know, but... I was I was listening to this lecture uh, that talked about uh, by uh, Paul Friedman. Um, it's an online course, and it was talking about the early Middle Ages and the God of the Old Testament. And he was saying that God, if you're you're carrying the uh, the Ark of the Alliance uh, of the of the Covenant, and someone slips and almost lets it lets it fall down, and because of that, that person is punished and he dies on the spot. You know, so mm-hmm. it's not a forgiving God there. So that that was that was the thing for all the religion classes that were teaching us about love. I think the the God that made more sense to me was the other god that was that was looking at me and waiting to punish yeah, me. just waiting for you to slip up i very much recognize my own experiences and everything you're saying so our second track uh why don't you tell our listeners what we have up now so this is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek choice uh, this is a very melodramatic campy song that comes from a musical that was an enormous hit in quebec so it's um notre dame de paris which was composed by Luc Plamondon and Richard Cassiante. So the name of the song is Il est venu le temps des cathédrales. So the time of the cathedral has come. Les poètes et les troubadours ont chanté des chansons d'amour qui promettaient au genre humain de meilleurs lendemains. Il est venu le temps des cathédrales. Boy, this is a really musical musical song <laughs> like you know what i mean when i say that like i guess i mean a bunch of things like it has a, a a very strong sense of musicality and melody and what have you but it also it sounds like it's from a musical <laughs> it is it is that's why I, I would say it's a very campy melodramatic song i've always enjoyed the fact that the chorus goes up like it walks up some stairs mm-hmm. so the song talks about building cathedrals stone by stone, step by step, and talks about mankind wanting to reach the stars. And I always thought it was a very clever trick that this song goes through the same kind of ascension and build up. Yeah, the, the chorus, basically. I, it was really funny. I was listening to this, and I thought to myself, that ascent, goes, la, 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 or whatever. Yes. Um, and I thought it goes on about two notes higher than you expect it to. Mm. And then about a half hour later, my husband came in the room and he mentioned that that song. And he said, yeah, that, that sort of rising part is that it goes on like two notes higher than you think it's going to. And I was like, I had the same mm. exact thought. Like it rises and you think it's going to be, I don't know, he, it sounds like he's just singing a scale. I haven't actually sat down to check out if that's exactly what he's doing. But it goes two more. It goes higher than you sort of are even expecting it to go. Yes, you're right. It's it's overreaching a little bit. And I think that's what the song is trying to say. And it begins in this soft way. And then towards the end, it's very climactic, almost orgasmic when it, 
it changes uh, gears and it says, il est foutu le temps des cathédrales. So the age of the cathedral is fucked, it's crude. There's this ambition, but also this Uh, the song. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it totally has those modulations at the end, which is another sort of kind of cheesy musical element, but it just grinds the tension higher. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned uh, singing this with your mother playing the piano. So, and you've also mentioned that there's a mu- lot of music in your, in your household when you were a little kid. So is this something that you would just do sort of socially as a family, make music together? Yes, we would. And uh, so my mom is a piano teacher and she made my sister and I learn uh, musical instruments. So my sister plays the cello and I I play the violin. Mm-hmm. I took lessons between the age of four to 20 and then we played in string uh, ensembles and uh, symf- uh, in a symphonic orchestra. Uh, so this was a very important part of our, uh, of our upbringing. I really remember how as a kid, my mother would have these very old notebooks and then she would sit us on either side of her as she would play the piano mm-hmm. so for instance we had all these fr- old french songs and we would be singing all of these all the christmas carols and then as we grew up if we liked songs like for instance all of notre dame de paris she had the the whole uh, score sheet mm-hmm. so we would be singing that very loudly you can imagine <laughs> that Il est venu le cantant de cathédrale is a very fun song to scream. Mm-hmm. Bruno Pelletier, so the singer for uh, this Il est venu le temps de cathédrale, also has this most intense Oh Holy Night interpretation. And another uh, uh, of those songs where you just bellow out <laughs> with all your, your might and it's so much fun to sing. It's really interesting. I grew up in a really rural area and I can remember... Sometimes when you're a teenager and you're just full of feelings or whatever, you just go to like a really quiet, abandoned place and just like yell as loud as you can. And sometimes I think about how in cities you never have an opportunity to really yell really loud. Mm-hmm. And when you're singing, you're you're yelling and it's allowed. <laughs> like, yeah. This is socially acceptable yelling. <laughs> this is why I love karaoke, actually, because uh, in my own home, I, I, I have a violin here and I try to play it with very... Like I can't do what I would do uh, inside the, my parents' house, and in the same way, uh, I, I don't sing very much in my own house because I don't want to, to to bother the neighbors. But when I go to karaoke, sort of those moments where you just let it go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm I'm looking at the notes that you sent me about your song choices, and this is a musical. It's an adaptation of the Victor Hugo um, Hunchback of Notre Dame sort of takeoff, correct? Like it is, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you have a uh, one of the notes was a relationship between Quebec and France. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how this song plays into that? Well, Luc Lamondon had a big career in France, so he was always traveling uh, these two uh, these two uh, worlds. And in the same way, a lot of our artists uh, in Quebec uh, measure themselves and their success sometimes by how much they can make it in Quebec, but also in France. And there's a, still this relationship, this cultural and not only linguistic relationship between Quebec and France where... Uh, we, I would say, for instance, Chanson Française is something that uh, we have uh, artists in Quebec who do songs that are more uh, inspired by people like uh, uh, Serge Gainsbourg, which I would say I, I, I never hear as much. I would say that the folk tradition in the English-speaking world is different from the kind of uh, from the kind of Chanson Française tradition we have uh, in France and in Quebec. I also wonder to what extent Notre Dame de Paris was such a hit because it's it's a kind of medievalism that Quebec, people in Quebec found interesting. To what extent we claim this heritage coming from Europe and 
New France is in some ways a bit of a medieval world. It's this uh, it's this world of survival where people were always subject to uh, the harsh conditions of uh, like the winter, the uh, uh, agri- agriculture. So I, I I feel like in Quebec also people like to talk about the dark ages uh, before the Quiet Revolution. So I do think there's a certain medievalism that's uh, proper that's uh, that's specific to Quebec. And I wonder to, yes, this is the reason why I wonder to what extent Notre Dame de Paris is a reflection of uh, of that medievalism. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about medievalism and how it came to be that you are a medievalist. But I have to quickly interject that, uh, again, I always think there are these interesting parallels between Newfoundland and Quebec. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have more of a language difference. But, I mean, I think Newfoundland really imagines itself as this little chunk of medieval Europe that sort of got tucked away in a forgotten corner and sort of everything passed by until the later part of the 20th century when all of a sudden we got all caught up all in, over the course of a couple of decades. And so that there's this idea that there's, that there's this medieval heritage that is actually still tangible, that it was that your grandparents grew Grew up in a medieval society, you know, and, and it sounds to me that Quebec is very much a similar sort of idea. That until extremely near in the past, the medieval is still tangible uh, in, in in how it imagines itself. So, I guess bearing that in mind, why don't you tell me how it came to be that you are a medievalist? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering if when you're talking about Newfoundland, if in Newfoundland there is also an interest, for instance, in the because as much as there is a rejection of the dark ages of uh, religion in Quebec. But then there's also this big investment in uh, live action RPG Mm. uh, role-playing. So D&D, Dungeon and Dragons. So I I know way more people in Quebec who who go off, for instance, there's this event called Bicolin, where it's for three, four days, people uh, go and live in a medieval world in a village in Quebec. And uh, it's enormous. It brings thousands of people. And I find it interesting that as much as there is, as I said, there is a rejection of everything that's associated with a certain aspect of the Middle Ages, uh, especially the re- religion, the Catholic Church, illiteracy, ignorance, poverty, uh, the agric- uh, reliance on agriculture. On the other hand, there's uh, the Middle Ages are invested with this kind of fantasy potential. And I wonder if in Newfoundland you also knew a lot of geeky nerdy people who would dress up as medieval knights. <laughs> I feel like my experiences are biased because I was a geek and most of my friends were too. <laughs> and I'm not sure mm. how reflective of the population at large. Certainly it is not um, not overly commercialized um, to... Uh, I mean, it, it is, but in a way that I think is not um, particularly notable. Um, but I also think about how in terms of like ideas of cultural authenticity, I mean, the authentic Newfoundlander should know how to row out in a small wooden boat and sort of catch a codfish by hand. And I feel myself, I lack authenticity because I've I've never done that. And if I needed to, I wouldn't know how. <laughs> and so I'm not mm-hmm. really, I'm not, I'm not a real Newfoundlander. I'm not authentic. <laughs> um, and I, I get that sort of people go off into the woods to their their little shacks that don't have any electricity and uh you know that is sort of communing with the uh or or, or recreating the sort of um pre-technological like past um which i guess is a form of fantasy role play even if the people doing it would never call it that or recognize it as such mm. <laughs> um yeah so what about your relationship with medievalism were you one of these fantasy role players 
I wasn't. And it's the thing that I, sometimes I, I, that puzzles me. Why did I end up, uh, did my childhood uh, announce the fact that I would be interested in the Middle Ages? Because, of course, I liked, I liked The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I liked... Um, uh, we went. We had a chance as a uh, when I was a child. I come from a privileged family that uh, that went on travels into Europe. So I got to see castles when I was a kid, and I found that very impressive and interesting. But I can't say that I liked the fantasy uh, medieval world more than I did, for instance, sci-fi. I liked. I I would say that I actually tended to like uh, sci-fi or let's say nineteenth century Victorian literature and uh, the universe uh, more uh, more than I did uh, fantasy. My mother, though, uh, was ver- always, always a big fan of uh, all kind of uh, historical fiction, especially things like uh, Ken Follett, The Pillar of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also read these romance-like novels about Eleanor of Aquitaine or the series uh, Les Rois Maudits. The Accursed Kings uh, by Maurice Drouin, which uh, starts with the trial of the Templars uh, in the 14th century. So I think, though, that as much as maybe it wasn't very conscious, I always float. I always was floating in an environment where the Middle Ages were there in the in the in the explicit or uh, way or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I almost wonder if that slight element of distance from every the thing that is, that is surrounding you might be the beginning of a critical distance or critical interest um it could be i don't know <laughs> i'm just theorizing <laughs> yeah it's a good question uh i would say that i i wonder to what extent i also when i came to university i thought to myself i'm never going to sit in the middle ages because i found uh, just because of that of the campy sign i found uh, uh with people dressing up as medieval knights, I found that very silly and immature. And it seemed to me like the Middle Ages was the Monty Pythons, uh, the Holy Grail. It had that vibe yeah. that I found not serious. And that, that's why I thought to myself, I'm never going to study that. So it was interesting in the end. It was through a, my mentor, Miguel Nancy Partner, who was a medievalist, that I became interested in Middle Ages because at first it was the period that I found completely uninteresting and that I attached with all these ideas about, that's it, of either backwardness or fantasy uh, that was immature city uh, camp and uh, it's mostly not very uh, interesting. So And now I'm thinking about, I'm not a medievalist. My um, perception of it is that in English language studies, England dominates the imagination of the Middle Ages. And when people are talking about medieval times in English, they are very, not only biased towards England, but almost have difficulty seeing beyond it. And I'm just wondering about, in terms of having a French language background and Quebec's relationship with France and medieval French and and what have you, Does that sort of set you apart from? Because you're at an English language institution now, do you feel that sets you apart from your colleagues, or makes you a little bit different in your perspective? So definitely, in the same way that you are aligned with England, Quebec is aligned with France. So in literature in high school, what we read was, for instance, uh, La Chanson de Roland, the Song of Roland. Mm -hmm. We read François Villon. We read uh, Rabelais, Gargantua. So it was we were completely aligned with the the French curriculum in that way, and. For instance, Joan of Arc, 
uh, in the in the Hundred Years War is the heroine for for us. So in the same way, you you might have read Chaucer and Beowulf, but that's not what we read. And to this day, I I have to admit my my knowledge of vernacular uh, English. Uh, medieval English is not uh, strong at all. I don't. I have. I haven't read the Pearl or any of these texts. Well, I mean, enough people have. <laughs> I think you're fine. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So what what do we have next? Uh, so my third song is Malajub's uh, Montréal Moins 40 from their 2006 album Trompe l'œil. You grew up in Montreal, yes? I actually am a suburban kid, to my great embarrassment. So I grew up on the South Shore, 15 minutes away from Montreal. Well, I mean, I very much know that the farther away you get, the sort of blurrier these lines become. And there's the narcissism of small difference when you're up close. Um, So in the same way that, uh, you know, here in Toronto, if someone who lives in um, Mississauga, it's like, oh, that's not Toronto. But... If you go a thousand kilometers away, it's like that person's from Toronto. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I feel if you're 15 minutes away from Montreal, uh, as long as you're not actually in Montreal, most people wouldn't begrudge you. <laughs> so. But as you said, there is this uh, there is this complex of inferiority when you grow up uh, outside of the island, and the fact also that Montreal's insular, it's very easy. Like if you live on the border of Markham and and Toronto or the border of Scarborough and Toronto, it's 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 a landlocked uh, uh, city, so it's a very different feel than Montreal is an island. It's this revered place that you have to go to, you have to cross a bridge or you have to go through a tunnel if you know want to go to. Well, you know, we were just talking about fantasy novels, and in so many fantasy novels, the magical city is on an island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it totally makes sense to me. Uh, I- islands are fascinating to me because they are conceptually distinct places that have this geographical, physical boundary that you you cannot. I mean, you can build bridges, but I mean, a bridge is it's a bridge. I mean, the symbolism is clear already. You know, you're transitioning from one place to another. There's a very clear. I'm I'm belaboring the point. You get what I mean. You've already said it. <laughs> I I mean I, I I it's interesting to me how Montreal has never lost that mystique, that attraction for me because as a, a suburban kid, I was always dreaming of going to Montreal. I, I was thinking to myself, when can I move there? Uh, I was always embarrassed when I, I had to go back to. Uh, to the South Shore, take a bus, and I couldn't stay on the island. So I, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that even though now I have a completely different relationship with it than so far as I know it very well, it's, I, I, I feel like uh, I, I live there, uh, still it has this power of attraction over me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, because my French is not amazing, I looked up an English translation of the lyrics, and I'm trying to remember exactly the phrase but there's this line, I think, in the chorus where it says, like, I, uh, Montreal, like, I forgive your arrogance or something like that. Oh, yes. I, I pass under silence your arrogance. Mm-hmm. You keep the rhythm. You put me in a trance. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's, that's, that's one thing I will say. Montreal and Quebec in general is the most... It's such a self-centered place. It likes to think of itself as this very open city, an international city, cosmopolitan city it is, but it's also an extremely snobbish place. When I moved to Toronto, people kept telling me, 
how can you be moving to Toronto? You're leaving Montreal. You're leaving the sacred island. Why would you be going to this place which has sacrificed its soul on the altar of money and business, uh, this ang uh, square, Anglo, uh, boring world? So Montreal is a very arrogant place. And I, I think in the end, I, I, would, I get very defensive about Toronto because I want to... I want to recognize its qualities, but in in the end, now that I've been here for six years, I agree that Montreal is a, is it a is a better place. It's a better <laughs> it's a better city, mm -hmm. and I, I feel bad. I feel bad to have to admit it because I didn't want to be that Montrealer, and especially since people in Toronto are so sweet about it. Whenever I'm I'm in a public place. I hear Torontonians talking about Toronto. Yeah. Uh, whether it's a bus, on a cafe, everyone has been to Montreal. Everyone like knows about it and thinks it's a cool place. Mm -hmm. And I feel that Torontonians are very apologetic about Toronto. When they, I remember buying a poutine when I was just in my uh, coming here in 2012, and the when the uh, the the woman heard my accent, she said, "Oh my God." Please, uh, I'm so sorry. This is not going to be what you're expecting. Don't have a high expectations. And that kind of <laughs> attitude of uh, begging for my forgiveness before I even tasted the poutine, I thought was very Toronto. Mm -hmm. And it also stems from the fact that Montreal is an arrogant place. Mm. It's so funny what you say. Um, I agree. Uh, I think, actually, if you ask a lot of Torontonians, they would say that Montreal is uh, superior in many qualities. <laughs> Um, it's really funny. Uh, I have a very touristic view of Montreal. I've only ever visited there as a tourist. And, you know, you stay in the hotel uh, in the old part of town and you walk around and it's just incredibly charming. The food is delicious. The people are gorgeous. The, this, the feeling of the place is just so palpable. But at the same time, I always get annoyed when Toronto tries to sort of position itself as the New York of Canada, which is ridiculous. But I feel like Montreal actually has more in common with New York. And I, I mean that as a compliment. Uh, I don't know if you have ever been to New York City or, or if that at all matches your experience. I have. I, I will say, I think that there is a, a clear connection in terms of, for instance, the, the history of those cities. So, for instance, Montreal is very... Uh, is of course extremely French, but it's also Jewish, Irish, Italian. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of families, uh, these are the people, uh, so for instance, in my family, my mother's last name is Sheridan. So when I go to New York, I have the same feeling that we have the shared history of having had the same immigrants. Mm -hmm. And when I look at people, they look more like the people in Montreal uh, in terms of the, our phenotype or like the, the people I imagine in my head when I think about someone in Montreal, I, I, I see these guys or these women with uh, darker hair, a little bit more Mediterranean maybe. So the, the French, Italian, uh, Ashkenazi, Jewish uh, mix coming together and that takes over, sorry, the Irish uh, red hair <laughs> and uh, blonde hair. That just doesn't last, you know. Oh. Whereas, so when I'm in Toronto, I find that people, uh, like the white people look Anglo to me. Mm -hmm. They look like they come from England and, England and Scotland in a way that I don't recognize when I'm in uh, New York or Montreal. Also, Manhattan is a magical island just like Montreal is, so... <laughs> It is, absolutely. Yeah. Islands and rivers. Um, so why don't you tell me about, well, the, the band name, Malajub? Did I say yes. that okay? <laughs> I'm uh, so apologetic. <laughs> no, not at all. You're, you're doing fine. So uh, why don't you tell me about this band and this song? 
I, I like this man now. Unfortunately, he's on a hiatus, but it's the it's. Um, I love how full of energy it is. I feel like it's perfect for walking the streets of Montreal and breathing the very cold winter air, even though it makes your lungs want to burst. Um, at, after the first chorus, though, it, it, it gets into a kind of dreamy quality, and it features another great artist, uh, singer-songwriter from Quebec called Pierre Lapointe, who's a brilliant, talented uh, dandy who was also making his breakout in the mid-2000s. So this is a song that I feel represents when I was a teenager and that I first got to go discover Montreal, spend some time with a friend who was older than me and was very kind and would... Uh, take the time to pick me up at the subway and we would go uh, together, we would go shopping, we would go see a movie. And it's when I hear it, I still think of this uh, this moment of, uh, of freedom when for the first time I, I got to, uh, to go to the big city. I'm just thinking now too, this is 2006. So this would have been around the time, maybe towards the tail end of it, but definitely it was still a thing when... Um, in uh, English Canada, bands from Montreal were really making a big, like there was a big explosion. Uh, Arcade Fire is the, the obvious one, but then you had like Wolf Parade and other bands like that. And there was this very much Montreal sound, which was this very energetic indie rock kind of thing. Uh, were you, it sounds like you were you were kind of into that scene somewhat? Uh, I will say my alternative song for uh, uh, representing Montreal was a song by Arcade I had chosen Afterlife from their uh, album Reflector. Mm -hmm. But yes, absolutely. The Myland uh, Anglo uh, uh, scene of Montreal is very well known. And I, I think that Montreal still is uh, very much of a music city. When I was a teenager, I was goth. So I didn't necessarily go to like uh, uh, those bars that played uh, Arcade Fire and, and these, these up-and-coming indie bands. I would actually go to the golf clubs, which played uh, 80s music <laughs> or, uh, or uh, what we called uh, EBM, Electronic Body Music, which is not to be confused with EDM. It's a different thing. And it's uh, so I would go to these... Um, industrial uh, cyber goth festivals or things like that actually I, I need to look up electronic body music because the, the phrase fascinates me that sounds like something that i would intuitively really respond positively to so i need to look into this so, <laughs> um so you mentioned that you were being you were a goth um that sounds like a good pivot point to our next song i think which yes. has a very strong gothic element i think so uh i'm really excited because this is a big favorite of mine too why don't you tell our listeners what's next so our next song is kate bush running up that hill from uh, the album hounds of love that came out in 1985 yes Why don't you tell me about how... Well, why don't you tell me your history with the song? How, how you first heard it and your relationship with it? Um, well, the song, I, I think I actually uh, didn't hear the Kate Bush original song first. I either heard the placebo cover 
so Plastibo is an alternative rock band from England, and their singer-guitarist Brian Malko is this androgynous, bisexual, very attractive guy, and that cover is way more restrained in a kind of pain-grieved way uh, than the original song. It's a it's the rendition, I feel, that took the longing and cranked up cranked it up to the maximum. Mm-hmm. So either I came to Running Up That Hill that way, Well, I came to it listening to Within Temptation, uh, Scover. And Within Temptation is the opposite. It's a symphonic metal, gothic metal band from the Netherlands. And symphonic metal, for those who don't know it, it's cheesy metal with Lord of the Rings-like instrumental music mm-hmm. on top. So uh, that cover is the opposite of placebo. And instead of being restrained, it's grand diva, emotional outburst running up that hill. Uh, when uh, Sharon Van Adel, the singer, uh, sings, you don't want to hurt me, but see how deep the bullet lies. You really feel it, you know, <laughs> like the bullet is in her chest. Yep. And I think these two covers and the original song together just bring out all these different emotions that I had as a teenager very well. So as sometimes as a teenager, you feel numb and lost and alienated from everything and other times your emotions are just boiling and they they spill out and i feel like all these all these different uh interpretations of running on that hill come together for me like that yeah those big those big gated drums they just thunder and it's yeah mm-hmm. i mean so the lyrical content is sort of uh, reflected with the with the music and the production that it just feels yeah it feels very full from an emotional point of view um yeah so i mean the uh, running up that hill was not she wanted to call the song a deal with god and her record company made her change it because they thought that would be too controversial and uh, it, it's a song that's about um swapping places with uh this 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 lover who was who has hurt you um and it's kind of about the uh i guess the difficulty of understanding and the sort of task of empathy uh to sort of bridge a really great distance between people um that's my take on the song at least and this is basically a song that's imagining what it would be like for a heterosexual couple to swap gender identities yeah i think that i learned a little later that this was a song was was about but i think it already it connected with my uh, my experience very much uh, i'm an intellectual geeky woman i take a, a little bit of space i speak my mind i take on public roles and because of that i think i've i've often felt like i didn't fit gender norms So when I was a kid, I had a lot of boys' interests. Uh, I loved Star Wars, dinosaurs, uh, Playmobil, Lego. Uh, I only had one Barbie, and I don't think that I played with her very much. <laughs> I wasn't a tomboy, though, because I wasn't sporty. But when I chose my clothes, as soon as, soon as my mother gave me the freedom to choose my clothes, I chose boys' clothes. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this song talks about gender really conveyed something that I, fe- I felt in terms of throughout my life in terms of being confused about what I was supposed to be because I, I never felt like I fell into those uh, into a normal uh, into the, the gender norms that were imposed upon me. Also I think that I was lucky because when I as I grew up people would comment on my intelligence. They never they never really commented on my uh, looks, my physical appearance, my body. So I know a lot of women who really define themselves through uh, their physical appearance, their sexual appeal. And I think that I was saved from that because of the fact that people thought I was uh, was very smart. 
Uh, it's definitely also because I'm privileged to have a body that com comforts to body norm. I don't have to deal with accessibility issues or fat phobia, but I really think that my body always took a kind of the who was never on the at the forefront of my mind. It was always or of my public uh, presentation. So and yeah, throughout my my teenage years, it was the same. Uh, when I, I went to high school, I wanted to become a social public person. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember at the end of my elementary school, everyone in my in-year book had written that I was very smart. And then I thought, I want to be something else. So I became this social butterfly uh, who talked to everyone and I would be very engaged in class uh, debates. I was very outspoken. So that led me to become a high school president and I was voted personality of the year and things like that. So again, it was never about where I looked uh, as a uh, about my appearance as a woman and these all these qualities of being assertive and being outspoken and ambitious it also broke the gender mold so I I often felt like I'm more of a, like I was more masculine I was more of a man I'm, I wasn't really a woman is is the way I've often felt throughout my life yeah and this is something that Kate Bush does a lot in her music a lot of her songs are sung from the point of view of a male character and um, she was also I mean the later part of her career she became very reclusive so this kind of works against this but this was her sort of big pinnacle of her success um, and like she, she produced this herself she was very much set herself up as an auteur and uh you know a um a genius she wasn't just the singer she wrote everything she sang she produced everything that she recorded she was in charge of everything from beginning to end and uh the first number one song in the uk that was sung by a woman who also wrote it it was wuthering heights so which was her breakthrough hit so it's interesting that this sort of dovetails into that and you didn't you weren't like a big kate bush fan initially when you were a teenager i think gathering from what you mm -hmm. said you you first uh, came through this through a couple of covers and you sort of learned leaned into the original through that but uh hearing you talk about how you sort of set yourself the task of becoming social and uh, learning that and learning how to have a social presence and to, uh, you know, basically not to, uh, not to ascribe any ill intent to you, but it sounds to me like you basically learned how to achieve social power, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Like you were the class president and you're the personality of the year. I mean, that is a position of, uh, uh, influence and I think that's the other thing as a woman you're supposed to be the care uh, the caretaker the nurturer and I know that I consciously decided that's not gonna be me I'm not going to be I I think I can be very maternal actually with my students for instance I know I, I, in my role as a teacher I have the mother hand I'm a tiger mom I'm very I can be very maternal but when I was developing I decided that the, the thing I would want to be were all traits that were associated with uh, masculinity, being assertive, uh, being dominant, uh, instead of being passive, letting others decide for me. And this was something that I did very consciously. And I know that I also sometimes thought to myself, well, you shouldn't be like a, a girl. You shouldn't cry. You shouldn't do certain things. I was, I was eight years old. I, I remember getting a soccer ball in my face in front of everyone at recess. And I didn't cry because I wanted to show that I was 
I wasn't a girl. Yeah. Basically. You were tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting point that Kate Bush's uh, songs are often from a male point of view. And I guess this also connects to something that I went through because a lot of my life, I when I, I looked at I consume media, I didn't feel at all like I could connect or identify with uh, female characters. So later on, when I started, uh, I would write fan fictions and I did role playing online, uh, written role playing. I only played male characters, and often these male characters were in relationships with other male characters. Mm-hmm. And I evolved. I ended up evolving in that world where I would say that we were all, I would say, girls playing boys who were in love with other boys. <laughs> and when I look back, I think it was such an interesting exploration of gender and sexual identity. And I think that I would ask people to listen to or to read Anna Wilson's work, whom you interviewed before, because the fandom world for that is so interesting. Uh, I discovered fandom and fan fiction. By, by accident, because I was playing video games like Final Fantasy VII, mm-hmm. and I would go on these like fan sites and brawls, and then I started seeing, I, I wonder what fan fiction was, and then I start, started seeing all these fanfics where two male characters were together, and I that started a whole trend for me where I I would read all these fan fictions where all these these characters from Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, uh, any media that I consumed, I would end up querying and then look for fan fictions about these uh, male pairings. So that's it. I, we were all women who ended up talking about being a, what it means to be a man uh, and a man who's also attracted to other men. That's so interesting to me. Um... I'm I'm sort of struck by because this is this is a thing like this is not the first time I've encountered this um, teenage girls writing fan fiction about male male pairings is is very much a phenomenon um, and it's very very different from the straight male fascination with lesbians and girl girl sort of porn performing for their pleasure um, which is very different from actual lesbians mm-hmm. um, but then I get the feeling that. Um, girls writing male male fan fiction is very different from the actual lived gay experience at least as far as i can tell as a gay man mm-hmm. <laughs> um so yeah it's this sort of gender as this sort of space of uh to sort of play with ideas and identity and sort of work things out and figure things out or just i'm, I'm at this point now speculating about something that i myself have not in done which is um gender play in fan fiction so i mean you tell me do you think it is using um this the imaginative space and community of fan fiction to um question and play around with gender identity in a safe way or something else i think that there's definitely a very heteronormative uh, sometimes structure to the way people envision these relationships so often in slash pairings, so same-sex pairings, there's a man who's the top and the, uh, uh, a guy, uh, the other guy who's often younger is the bottom. So these dynamics are uh, and, and producing a certain kind of, uh, I would say, a certain kind of heteronormative and even uh, homophobia. On the other hand, I remember that some of the people I met on the internet were gay or were trans, and I think that for them, this was a very... Uh, liberating, empowering medium to be able to uh, live as these characters were uh, aligned with the gender that uh, they identified with. And for someone like me, I, I think that it was it was uh, 
maybe it was also confirming to something that I wanted to be, that I thought to myself, I'm a woman, but in so many ways, I don't conform to uh, gender norms about what a woman should be. So it, it allowed me to have this space where I could live out this fantasy and think about what it would be if I were a man. Yeah. So yes, but I, I sometimes I, I wonder also about that that dimension. How in the end when you're queering two characters together, is this a identifying identification thing where you think you're you as a hetero uh, straight woman that you're attracted to the other male character, even if it no matter the gender of your own character? So that is something I, I've I've never been sure. If like the if I'm on it seems to me like there's a higher ratio of queer people in the fan community, but I, I wonder how how people uh, feel about uh, uh, this what do, when when you're playing a character who's male who's in love with another man, are you by proxy playing out your straight fantasies or are you into the queering? Uh, I think it might be both at the same time. I'm, I've never been sure about that. I mean, as an outsider, it seems to me that, that the answer to that question might differ from person to person. Mm-hmm. For me, I think this queerness has, has continued. I made friends who were gay and trans when I was online and now I'm, it's also a, a sizable proportion of my friend circles are queer. Uh, and I'm part of a now today RPG, tabletop RPG group where I'm the only straight person out of seven people. I go to see RuPaul's Drag Race in the village on Church Street with friends. So I think that for me, it was a, a door that was open onto a, an alternative world that I, I, I came to to bring me something I needed uh, and made me meet with and connect with people who have had an experience of alienation, which has given them like depth and richness and generosity and empathy and creativity. And I, I, I'm really grateful for having stumbled into those slash fan fictions when I was 12. You know, it's, I think it's, it, I, I I wouldn't have found a community like this if I hadn't done that. It's, you never know what little thing is going to, you know, what little seed is going to blossom. So uh, the last song you have for us, why don't you tell our listeners what it is? Uh, it's Iggy Pop, uh, China Girl, from the album The Idiot, which came out in 1977. I had stolen into town Just like a So I was familiar with the David Bowie cover of this. I'm not sure I even realized it was a cover. Um, This is much earlier. Um, And it is, well, (laughs) I'm getting my white person cringe set up already. It's kind of uh, an interestingly problematic uh, song. Mm -hmm. So uh, why don't you take the reins and lead the discussion on this a little bit? (laughs) Tell, tell Tell me about this song and your relationship to it. Well, I've always liked... Uh, the uh, Iggy Pop version better because I find it grittier and darker, like more muscular. I think the Bowie song is a bit more daintier and playful, but I like that the Iggy Pop version really lays it thick. Uh, when he's, he talks to the China girl in very menacing, slurring, drunken way and says, my little China girl, you should have messed with me. Uh, I'll ruin everything you are. I I find that part. I I don't think it should be played down. I should. I think that it has to be uh, the way that Iggy Pop sings it as something that is threatening and that is that sounds dangerous. You know. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, 
it's interesting. I, I listened to this again this morning, and I've never thought too deeply about this song. But it's always been just sort of, I've been aware of it, but it's never been sort of brought into a sharp focus for me. And I mean, he's going on this rant towards the end about how, like, uh, I'll ruin everything you are. I'll bring you television. I'll bring you eyes of wor- blue. I'll bring you a man who wants to rule the world. And, and then basically the one moment of agency that the China girl is allowed is she basically tells him to shut up. And then he does. Exactly. He doesn't speak again for the rest of the song. It's instrumental. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yes, which I found interesting. I, I totally agree. That's the other thing I like at this as uh, at the end. She's, is she turning the tables on, on this guy? Does she take him seriously? So it's the one moment of agency that we get about this woman at the end. And yeah, like you said, it's a problematic song. It's a... I, I uh, I know that David Bowie in this clip, uh, in, in the clip he made for his uh, interpretation of the song, said that he chose this. He chose this. Uh, he tried to break stereotypes, but it remains that it's an objectifying song. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the title is China Girl, which just sounded like the pejorative expression China Man. It's a song about a white man desiring an Asian woman, and. I would say that I chose this song because I think it represents my Asianness. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, uh, your, uh, our listeners uh, can't see what I look like, but it might be that they constructed on their head someone who uh, is white based on my accent and the way I, I've been expressing myself. But I'm actually uh, adopted from China, and uh, I, my, the fact that I'm Chinese has always been the kind of construction that's been imposed upon me that by the outside world so yes by birth uh i'm i'm chinese my ethnicity is chinese but i'm a model banana because i look i look asian i look chinese but i grew up in a household in the on the south shore of montreal with parents who are white and i i don't speak mandarin and my contact with chinese culture has been the same as any white person who would be interested in Chinese culture uh, and would seek it out a little bit. But I, there is, in some ways, nothing Chinese about my upbringing my, or uh, what I, my, my experience. So a little bit of a difficult question, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, people who don't know you, just see you, um, will assume that you are uh, culturally Asian because of your physical appearance. Um, I, I can probably guess the answer to this, but I mean, have you faced racial prejudice as a result of this? I would say that definitely in, in different in different ways. When I was a child, I was never really bullied, but I had kids making comments like, "Well, when as soon as they they learned I was Chinese, they asked me things like, where is your real mother?'" And that's always so. That's the adoption side of it. And then I've had teachers, people in my life tell me things like, well, you're obviously very talented and you respect your the hierarchy and you're structured and organized because you're Asian. So I've been, I would say, a collateral uh, victim of, of the prejudices, the, the positive bias mm-hmm. against, uh, against Asians and uh, against East Asians. So people uh, have, been, have told me, I haven't had I haven't really heard racial slurs thrown at me or things like that, but I had other children sometimes make comments about it. Or uh, I had in, this, in Quebec, like 
It's a society where people really ask you to define your identity, to make clear where you belong, in which camp is it that you, you which, which camp do you want to sign? And as a Asian woman, people in Montreal, especially, a lot of people are dressed to be in English because they think I'm not going to be able to speak French. So I haven't faced a lot of blatant outright racism in the same way that I would see an Arab or a black person would or an indigenous person. But I definitely had to deal with a lot of this more uh, lower on the spectrum kind of racism. Mm, the model minority thing. And yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's interesting. The Quebec dimension adds something unusual um, in that I guess if people, uh, you've already said this basically, people in Quebec and I, I think probably also outside of Quebec would assume that you would speak English to some degree of fluency, um, depending on like how, you know, how many generations in North America you've been. Um, I think they don't expect to hear a Quebecois accent when you open your mouth or to hear mm -hmm. French. Um, and uh, does that ever just throw people for a loop, I guess? I would say that I think that sometimes... People, I've, I've felt very uncomfortable when I've tried to assert my Asian-ness because some, some people have told me, well, I don't see you as Chinese at all. And I don't think they meant it as a compliment or a, as anything special, just as to me, because you're like me, we grew up together, you're, this, you're just like a white person. And in that way, I felt like it was erasing the fact that I'm a visible minority. But then in other other times, it was the opposite. And people have reinforced the alterity they felt about me. So if I express the fact that sometimes in, in Quebec, people try to tell me that I wasn't really a, a, a pure laine Québécoise. That, so pure laine is a 100% wool. So that they're like... Uh, that I wasn't a true Quebecer, then people would tell me, well, you know, but you weren't born here, and, well, you're not really a, a Quebecer because you're... So I, I've always felt that that puts me a very awkward and specific category. I'm a Chinese-adopted Francophone Quebecois, you know? And I feel like if I had been a child of immigrants, uh, I, it would come with a very different set of issues, but at least I have an actual claim to a heritage uh, and no one would question it. So even if I know that second and third generation immigrants feel estranged from the culture of their parents and grandparents, they at least it's still kept alive sometimes in a certain way. They might be able to speak the language or, I don't know, their parents cook in a certain way. They, they practice certain rituals. But for me, my grasp on Quebec culture is questioned and my grasp on Chinese culture, well, I, I don't even know how I feel about it because it seems I, I almost wonder if when I try to make any claim or knowledge, uh, claim towards Chinese culture or my Chinese heritage, I, I wonder if it's legitimate or if it's a kind of strange, twisted cultural appropriation because why is it that the fact that I was born in China give me any more legitimacy than like a white person who maybe learned Mandarin and studies uh, China. Yeah. So I've, I've had this rough relationship with how I should feel about uh, my Chinese heritage. And I should say that there is um, an episode of uh, another megaphonic podcast, The Scene of the Scene, where you and Chris talk about a movie. My memory is a little bit fuzzy, but it, it's where um, 
is it China or is it Korea? Uh, where, it's in Korea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where um, uh, people who are adopted as babies go back to try and find their sort of birth parents and to reconnect with uh, the culture, their birth, their birth heritage, which they have no familiarity with or very little familiarity with. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, you've, you've, this is probably covering some of the same territory, but have you had much of an impulse to you know try and build those connections um, to China or Chinese culture? Did you ever want to go back and find where you you know where your family is from, your your biological family? I mean, um, I would say that I feel tense about this sometimes, and so far as Chinese people have. Uh, some random Chinese people have throughout my life made me feel like it was a complete failure on my part and it's something shameful that I did not uh, cultivate a relationship with China, that I don't speak Mandarin. Um, so there's a part of it that sometimes resisted that and thought to myself, well, this screw you, you know, if you don't accept like what happened to me, then I don't want to... Uh, to engage with uh, Chinese culture, with Chinese language. But at other times, uh, yes, I've, I've thought about sometimes wanting to go back and, and, and I've thought about wanting to learn Mandarin. So yes, recently I was watching this Chinese drama and I was thinking to myself, wow, all of these people look like me. Uh, I went to see Crazy Rich Asians because I felt like as an Asian person in North America, it was my duty to give some money <laughs> to a movie that had a predominantly like Asian cast. Mm -hmm. So, but this is where, as I said, I wonder how much of that is legitimate. Maybe I'm the only one who can answer that question and I shouldn't look for a, a external uh, judgment on this, but sometimes I wonder, uh, am I justified in trying to cultivate that? Because in the end, I don't really have a an actual connection to China except for my ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's it's a question I still really grapple with. And I would say that it's really been in the last, uh, it's always been something on my mind, but since I've become more and more political and I've read more about, uh, I'm not a, a historian who works a lot on race, but I through my politics, I've, I've, I care about intersectionality, the empowerment of people of color. I've grown more comfortable with trying to think about my Chinese-ness and identifying myself as Asian. Yeah, I'm just thinking now, uh, listening to you talk about how, like, your very existence uh, and the sort of categories that you get, you know, are placed in kind of show, people take these categories as being sort of firm and uh, static, ahistorical, with clear boundaries, when they are fluid and they're constructed and their boundaries are permeable. And it's kind of like you, you sit between categories that people are not used to thinking of as things that can be bridged or like things that can be sort of combined or what have you. And so it's kind of like you, you have to live this fluidity that most people kind of pretend doesn't exist, I think. Absolutely. And, and when you're adopted, I feel like it just puts, uh, it highlights and emphasizes in such a, a clear way the constructedness of all these categories. Because as I said, when people ask me, do you, do you know who your real mom is? What does reality mean in this case? My mother is my mother and she's my real mother. My Belgian mother is not my real mother. So I, I remember being bothered by this. And as I've grown older and I've matured and I've processed these things, it may, and I was able to learn some theory that could put some words onto this, it made me realize that these social categories are constructed. That language is very loaded as well. Mm -hmm. That I, I attach a lot of importance, of course, as an academic and as a historian to the kind of words I use. And when people use terms like 
well, you're not really Chinese or you're not really a, a Quebecer. What does that mean? What is it? Is that trying to imply? And I, I really think that anyone, so for instance, as a as a gay man, you've been able to have this experience of alienation, of feeling outside the norm. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the same way, being adopted, being Chinese in a place like Quebec, which is so, uh, as I said, which uh, which uh, struggles so much with the, uh, determining its identity, but it's really made me forced me to think about uh, these issues uh, from from the time I was uh, I was a child. It's interesting that you know you sort of you, you you hailed me there as a gay man because I've often thought about this as basically the gift of queerness, and it's a painful one when you first receive it, but it 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 kicks you out of the norm. And from that position, you can sort of reevaluate so many things. It's, it's an opportunity to not take things as given. And like I said, it's a painful one because it comes with alienation and uncertainty. But I, I ultimately now think of it as a gift. Mm -hmm. It's allowed me to be, in my opinion, more awake to how things, how things are rather than how people think they are. <laughs> I don't know. This is just me sort of uh, talking about my own experience of alienation and, and othering here. I don't know if, if it reflects yours. Oh, of course, it's, it's the same. And I, feel, I, I think one of the reasons why I'm such a, uh, I'm so, such a committed uh, left-wing uh, person is because I realize the randomness of life and the the idea that you are not the privilege you have, you're not entitled to it. I was born, I, w I was left in the street uh, and I, uh, I was brought to an orphanage. I could have, I could now be dead. Mm -hmm. I could have died in the, at the orphanage by being sick or being malnourished. Or I could now be working in the iPhone factory, making iPhones for the people that are my who are my friends now. And I think that Knowing that and that the facticity of of uh, of our relationships of uh, our of our social classes of uh, uh, all of this is is just, is so obvious to me that I never take take anything for granted and I think that that's that the reason why I'm I'm left wing is because I know that things because I've been completely different for me mm -hmm. that I. I am now this extremely privileged person who grew up uh, in North America and who's uh, attaining the highest, the highest level of education I, I could uh, achieve. And this only because of a, of random luck. It has nothing to do with the fact that I was favored by God or that uh, I'm a, I'm a special person with uh, incredible talents. It's just because someone left me and made the choice of leaving me one day in a, in the street and that I was adopted by the parents I have. Yeah. So I think that the, the people who forget about their privilege didn't have that gift or that opportunity of realizing that their life is not a given. It's not. It was not ordained or it was not predestined by by any anything. It's just random, uh, random coincidence. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of anything better to say. <laughs> that is exactly so. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Michael. I hope that you can make us sound articulate and thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will be no problem at all. Many thanks to Lotion for sharing her life and music with us. And thanks to you, listener, for joining us. This Is Your Mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. Check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm. 
For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 23. That includes links to Lotion's previous appearances on The Scene of the Scene. This Is Your Mixtape sends a hearty congratulations to former guest Michael Richardson, whose short film My Loneliness Is Killing Me just won a BAFTA award. To hear me and Michael chat about all kinds of stuff, most of it gay, check out episode 5 of This Is Your Mixtape, titled Queer Curation, at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 5. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at EarlKing, E-R-L-K-I-N-G. I love to hear from listeners. If you want to support this podcast, the best way is to leave a review on iTunes, or simply to tell your friends about it. I hope you've enjoyed today's mix. We'll see you next time.